If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Luke. And what we do at Woodland Hills Church, if you're visiting, it's nothing fancy. We're not into entertainment. We just study the Bible. And because uh, the kingdom is not about entertainment, the kingdom is about transformation. And uh, we believe that there's power in the word, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we, we just get into this. Uh, there are certain messages that I think should come with a warning label on them, and this is one of them. And the warning label is, uh, watch out, it's radical. Uh, for those who are visiting or are new to Woodland Hills Church, if you come from a traditional background, uh, some of what will be said today are going to be, uh, it's going to be outside of, of categories that you've had before. And I just encourage you to keep an open mind and uh, be, always be asking the question, is this the Word of God? Because it doesn't matter what Greg thinks, what matters is, is what's, what's revealed in the Word. And so just be listening to this with, that, with this grid on. But the truth is, and here's the warning, the kingdom is more bizarre and more radical than most of us have ever dreamed. We are conditioned, especially those of us who are raised in Christendom, to read the Bible through the lenses of religiosity, and we miss all the radical stuff. And my job here is to let that radical stuff rise up and shine. Now, we're going to be moving, believe it or not, on to the next 16 verses of Luke chapter 4. Uh, 16 verses. Uh, now, we may be dealing with these same 16 verses for the next two years, for all I know. I, you know, that's how it goes around here, but I don't think so. Uh, but we're going to be covering 16 verses. We've spent a couple months. What did I say? We're going to be covering 16 verses? I said something funny. don't know what it was. Finally. <laughs> okay, that's Dan. That's Dan. And that's... Oh, try okay, think of something and come back right, really quick. Okay. Everything nice I just said about him, I take back. <laughs> um, finally, we're moving on from the temptation narratives to Luke chapter 4, four verses 14 through 30. As I'm uh, dealing with this passage, I'm going to be raising some questions. Uh, we are, in some ways, I see the church as sort of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord for a blessing. And sometimes you've got to wrestle with the word and dig into it and work to find the treasure that is there, but it's always worth it. And so uh, we're going to be raising some questions here. So let's read the text together. It's, uh, I'm reading out the TNIV version. And by the way, I'm entitling this The Outsider's Kingdom. The Outsider's Kingdom. Jesus, having just been tempted in the desert, it says he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So he's going to his hometown now. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. When you hear synagogue, don't think of a church building. They didn't have church buildings that were synagogues back in those days. It would be someone's designated house. Probably the person in the biggest house, uh, they, they, that was just called the synagogue. And so that's where the people in the town of Nazareth, which was a very small town, they'd gather together and they'd study the word uh, and they'd sing some psalms and they'd pray. Uh, and so you've got to think of a gathering probably of around 20 to 30 people. It might have been a little more here because Jesus was something of a celebrity already, but it wouldn't be a gathering like this by any means. So they're gathered together in someone's house. This is the synagogue. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Note that it's a scroll, not a book. They didn't have books back in those days. They would just roll a parchment, and so to read the Bible, you had to unroll the scroll and get to the point 
It was a time-consuming thing, but to get to the point uh, that you wanted to read from. What would usually happen is they had a leader of a synagogue, the elder uh, of the synagogue, not necessarily an ordained rabbi or anything of this sort, but the elder would either assign a text or a reading to somebody and just say, you know, would you uh, uh, read this text and talk to us, you know, what you feel the Lord's telling you about this text? Or sometimes they'd just say, open up for volunteers. Who would like to read? And, and who would like to, uh, to preach? And so we don't know whether Jesus was appointed or whether Jesus just volunteered. But one way or another, Jesus stands up, goes to the front of the synagogue, and opens the scroll. Unrolling it, it says, he found the place where it is written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, Jesus is here reading Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Although we'll see here in a moment, he's reading it in a little bit of a strange way. He mentions the, the year of the Lord's favor, and most scholars agree that that is a reference to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And the year of Jubilee was that every 50 years, all debts were canceled, all prisoners got set out of, out of prison, land was restored to the original owner, etc., etc. It was a, it, all, all slates were wiped clean for an entire year, once every 50 years. That was the year of the Lord's favor. And what this text is saying is that when the Messiah comes, he'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But they all understood the year wasn't a literal year. It's an epic. It's an age. It's a period of time. And we are still in this uh, period of time. Okay. Then it says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, or the elder, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They're staring at him. So there's this kind of dramatic silence. And then Jesus begins to talk. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? For crying out loud, son of a carpenter? And he's talking like this. Now Luke leaves out what those gracious words were. Uh, but uh, they clearly were, would have been expounding on this year of Jubilee, what the Lord has come to do. And Jesus is here presenting himself as the Messiah. And now things begin to get strange. Get your thinking caps on. We're going to start thinking here. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, which we all know, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, prophets are not accepted in their hometown. Now here's what's weird. Why is Jesus all of a sudden, sudden picking a fight? It says they were speaking well about him. And, uh, you know, and, and they're amazed at his gracious words. And all of a sudden Jesus is like, oh, you'll probably go say, heal yourself, physician. Do some miracles like he did in other places. Well, I'm telling you, you know, prophets aren't accepted in their own hometown. Well, it sounds like they were trying to accept you and you're picking a fight. Isn't that weird? I think it's weird. Why is he so cynical about his, his, his own kinfolk for crying out loud? But it gets weirder. Listen to this. Verse 25. I assure you, says Jesus, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Verse 26. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but rather to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. 
And my question is, what's that got to do with the price of asparagus in Britain on Tuesday? That's random. Why does Jesus all of a sudden tell this story? And why does he throw in these details about where this particular widow came from? But it gets weirder. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, Jesus says, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And what's that got to do with the temperature on the dark side of the moon? Uh, why is he bringing up this? And what's with all these random neat details? Who cares about the name of the guy and where he's from? And what's the point of this whole thing anyways? But it gets even weirder. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogues were furious when they heard this. Why? <laughs> Sunday school stories for crying out loud. What would, why would they be ticked off at that? I never noticed any of this before this week, by the way, when I start studying for this message. It's like when you start getting in, it's like, what is this? Whoa, that's weird. Why are they mad at him? Why is he mad at them? What's going on? The Matrix. They, they were so mad, it says in verse 29, they got up, they drove him out of town, they took him to the, the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They were really ticked off at this homeboy. Why? Because he told two Sunday school lessons about two healings. What would make them so mad about that? But then it says in verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and he went on his merry way. And we're not told how that happened. Did he say something that all of a sudden kind of brought them to their senses and they realized what they're doing? Did he use some kind of supernatural power? We, we're not told, but Jesus thankfully gets out with his life. As is often the case, uh, sometimes the best nuggets in the Word are found by wrestling with some questions. So I'll break down my questions that I have about this text into, th into three groups. Question number one. If the people of Nazareth spoke well of Jesus and they were amazed at his gracious words, why did Jesus all of a sudden get so cynical towards him? What was up with that? Let's try to make sense out of that. Number two, why the two seemingly random stories about two prophets with their seemingly random details? Why, did, why, why does that happen out of the blue? And number three, why do the townspeople react so violently to Jesus' message when he tells these two Sunday school, Sunday, uh, school stories? What's up with this? And I believe if we can answer those questions, we're going to find here a profound teaching. Uh, in fact, I think it's the central point of this passage. I will tell you up front that this is my way of reading this text. It's not the only way of reading this text. But since I'm the one doing the talking, it's the right way of reading this text. <laughs> but just take it for what it's worth. Uh, chew on it and always be, be, be comparing Scripture with Scripture. I want to give five points of teachings here, five considerations, which I think begin to make sense out of this text and just kind of yank out uh, the profundity of the text. Point number one, you need to know that the word amazed in Greek, thalmazo, it's not necessarily a positive word. It can mean amazed in a negative sense, as in shocked. Okay, so, so just bear that in mind. Point number two, it says that the people spoke well about Jesus. They spoke well of him. The phrase spoke well, martyreo, means uh, uh, to bear witness. We, we get the word martyr from it. And it means to bear witness. And it, it also is, can be a neutral term, to bear witness. It doesn't necessarily have to be positive. The phrase of him, auto in Greek, is in the dative case, which means it can be translated of him, but it can also be translated against him. So the phrase can be translated, they bore witness of him or for him, on the one hand, or it can be translated, they bore witness against him. 
It could be that they were amazed and spoke well about him, or it could be that they were shocked and spoke bad about him. The context has to determine which one is true. And I suggest to you it makes a whole lot more sense to think that they were uh, going the second one. It was a negative reaction that they were having. Now, why would they be shocked at what Jesus was saying? There's two things that are indicated in the text. The first one is my third point, point number three. They asked the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Think about this. Jesus just read Isaiah 62, which is one of the most famous messianic passages in the Old Testament. That means the passages that prophesy about a coming Messiah. And Jesus just applied this to himself. So we can understand how the people in this town who knew Jesus since he was a little kid might be a little bit surprised. You know, this is the little, you know, snotty-nosed kid who, who, who was, was always, you know, hanging around. And granted, he was a perfect kid. But even perfect little toddlers can get into trouble. And he had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered, like, like, like everybody else. So, you know, they had a very normal view of Jesus. And here this guy is, the carpenter's son, claiming to be uh, the Messiah. Not only that, but never forget that Jesus had a reputation. This would not have gone away in quiet in first century Judaism, but he was born out of wedlock. And so it would have been just a, and yeah, Mary had that story that some people know about with the angel, whatever, but how many people believe that one? And so, so there's this carpenter kid who was born out of wedlock, and he's standing up and he's proclaiming he's the Messiah. That would shock. That would shock these people. The second thing, however, is even more fundamental. Luke says that they were thalmazo, they were shocked at his gracious words. Now, why would they be shocked at his gracious words or his words of shocking grace? You could put it like that. One indication might be found if we go back to the original verse that Jesus was reading here. Okay, keep your thinking caps on. We go back to the original. What was Jesus reading? That might tell us why these people were shocked. Here's what you find in the original. On the whole, Jesus quotes the verse just like it's found in the original. But here's what the original says in Isaiah 61, verse 2, the second half of it, which is what the B stands for. It says, The Messiah comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus reads the passage, he just proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't go on to finish it. He doesn't mention the day of vengeance of our God. And see, to many Jews in the first century, that part about vengeance was very important, maybe even the most important. Um, the way most Jews in the first century would read this, this passage, and remember the Jews are under uh, pagan rule. They're under the rule of the Romans, and these Romans can be oppressive and nasty and mean. Life isn't very fun for Jews of the first century under Roman rule. And the way they would read this passage from Isaiah 61 would be something like this. The Messiah is going to come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to us insiders and the day of vengeance of our God towards those outsiders. And to the Jew of the first century, both were part of the good news. It's good news that God's going to have favor on us. But it's also good news that those nasty, mean-spirited, immoral, God-rebellious Romans, Gentiles, pagans are finally going to get their due. It's both part of the good news. 
And in fact, here is where you'll get the loudest amen. When you get to the vengeance part about how God's going to have vengeance on all those mean, nasty people that we want to get even with anyways, here's where the crowd really gets r rallied together. Here's where we celebrate that we are us and they are them. And we get blessed and they get judged. Here's where the Jew of the first century would say, now we can really say amen to the fact that we are Jewish and not like those pagans. And we are clean, not like those unclean sinners. And we are elect and not like those reprobate. And we're on the inside and they're on the outside. And we get grace and they get curses and, 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 and we're the ones who are righteous and keep the law and those people just do all these immoral acts and don't keep the law and finally God's going to stick it to them and we're looking forward to that day. And, and that's where you would really rally together. They're going to get their due. Finally, it will pay off that we have sacrificed so much to walk with God. And those folks don't do diddly squat and, and, and we'll, then we'll see that all of our sacrifices have been worth, worth it. See, there's something... There's something about all religion, for all the good it sometimes does. Religion gravitates towards, let's call it the vengeance clause. We like that vengeance clause. Um, you can get a, a crowd rallied in a frenzy with the vengeance clause. There are some sociologists who say that you can't get a crowd together and, and, and get a real unity going and a vibrancy going unless you have a vengeance clause. You need some common enemy, somebody to rally against. And us versus them. Humans in our fallen nature, we feed off of the us-them contrast. We like the us-them contrast. And what religion does is it brings the us-them contrast into the, into the throne of heaven. And it exacts vengeance on the them and blessings on the us. If you want to see a good, a good picture of this, just... Turn on the news and watch what's happening in Iraq right now. It's the us-them vengeance clause exacted 10, 20, 40 million times a day. One group kills some loved ones of another group, and that, that group then says, we pledge vengeance on that group. Allah will have vengeance on that group. The other group, then, then they strike and they kill some of their friends, and then they pledge vengeance. Allah will have vengeance on that group. And we got Allah group versus Allah group, and the vengeance is going on. And all of that, by the way, is simply a sort of intensified microcosm of world history. World history is a bloodbath of, 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 of people exacting vengeance in the name of God. Because, see, there's a very small step between believing that God's going to exact vengeance on your enemy, on the one hand, and believing that God's called you to exact vengeance on your enemy. Very closely aligned together, which is why, and this might strike you as odd for a pastor to say, but remember, the kingdom of God is not about religion. In fact, it's the opposite of religion. I, religion is one of the most dangerous things on the planet. It does good, yes, but there's all, it's also one of the most dangerous things, uh, precisely because you get a God authority and you, you, you God christen your, your basic vengeance instincts. The only thing that's more dangerous than religion, I'm convinced, is religion mixed with politics. And a lot of bloodshed in world history, most of the bloodshed in world history is the result of people doing their politics in the name of some God or other. I thought I'd give a little amen on that one anyways, yes. Religion's dangerous. So these, these Jews of the first century, understandably, are really mad at the Romans, and, and they want that vengeance clause. Yes, the good news is about God's favor to us, but the good news is also about God's vengeance towards them. And so as Jesus is preaching their, 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 this verse, some of them are sitting at the edge of their seat, and they're wringing their hands like, oh, this is the good part. And they're getting ready to say, amen, man, we're going to, you know, you, you wave the flag and the cross and the sword. Man, this is where we're going to celebrate the vengeance. And Jesus stops. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they're going, and, 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 come on, come on, bring it home now. Bring it down the stretch. Come on, brother, lay it on us. And Jesus stops. No, you know what? Now, now Jesus does believe that God will have a day of vengeance. 
But what he's doing is he's driving a wedge, a temporal wedge between what he's about in this day of Jubilee and a vengeance that is to come. And by the way, if you study the teachings of Jesus carefully, you'll see that when vengeance finally does come, it's not always on the people that you thought it was going to come on. There's always this kind of surprise reversal. Yeah, that's a different sermon. Right now, I just want us to see that. Jesus is saying this. The year of Jubilee, this epic of Jubilee when it comes, uh, this isn't the time of vengeance. Rather, this is the time of Ali Ali infree. God is proclaiming a wiping of the slates clean for you, yes, but also for them. In other words, God is leveling the playing field. God is collapsing the us-them distinction. God is saying this is the epic of grace for everyone. This is the epic of God's love for everyone. This is the epic of forgiveness for everybody. This is the Ali Ali infree. And see, if you are getting life from the us-them distinction, this isn't good news to you. Uh, all of a sudden, you mean the good news is going to come to our enemies? Some of these people don't like it, and so they get ticked off. And now you can begin to understand why they might be shocked and angry at what Jesus is saying. But it gets worse. It gets worse. And here, this brings me to the fifth point. Why did Jesus bring in these two apparently random stories with all this apparently random detail? Why did he bring up the story in verse 25 and 26 about Elisha? ministering to the widow at Zarephath. And why the story about Elisha, or Elijah and then Elisha uh, ministering to, the, to Naaman, the Syrian leper. Let's make sense out of this. Whenever you see something that's totally unintelligible or irrational in the Bible, it's time to start digging because usually there's something that you don't know that will make sense out of the whole picture. Here's what's going on. Those seemingly random details are not random at all. In fact, those, those, those details are the point of these stories. When Jesus says that the widow was at Zarephath and Sidon, what he's saying there is she wasn't Jewish. In fact, she was in Zarephath and Sidon, which was enemy territory. And God, in the midst of this famine, after three and a half years, how many hungry widows were there in the land of Israel? Wouldn't you think that God would first minister to the widows of his chosen people, uh, that he'd first take care of their needs, and if there's any leftovers, then go to the pagans, but who's expecting him to do that anyways? But instead, what God does is he passes by those who you would think were on the inside, and he ministers and saves the life of this widow who's a widow uh, in, in pagan territory. Jesus is using it as an example of good news bypassing those you thought would receive it, the insiders, to bring it to those who were on the outside. And then he uses the, the second story, which is even more radical, Naaman uh, of Syria. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 5, you'll find that Naaman was this leper from Syria, but he wasn't just, which is pagan, which is pagan. he's not Jewish. But not only that, but he is the captain. He's the captain of the Syrian army. And not only that, but Israel right in this episode that Jesus is talking about, is in the middle of a long and very vicious war with the Syrians. This is the guy who's leading the charge to slaughter uh, uh, um, Israelites. And in the midst of this, Elisha ministers to Naaman. Here's what happened. Naaman had captured, and this is pretty typical for the ancient world and still goes on today, uh, he had captured uh, some, some Israelites. He spots some cute-looking Jewish girl, Besides, he wants to make her one of his wives. So she's one of his wives. He's a leper, so that's not really good news, is it? This young Jewish girl's got her wits about her, and so she tells this pagan, hey, there's a guy in Israel uh, who maybe can heal you. His name is Elisha. He does miracles sometimes. And so even though there's this war going on, Naaman sneaks out, brings his entourage to Elijah's house. It's a beautiful story. It's, it's the most, one of the most gracious stories you'll find in the whole Old Testament. Sneaks out and goes to Elijah, 
in order to get a healing from this guy who maybe that day was he was trying to kill. And uh, uh, Elijah doesn't want his money, but he does, to make a long story short, uh, give Naaman this healing. And Naaman is, is ultimately healed. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying this. Think of all the lepers there were in Israel, hundreds, maybe thousands of lepers that were in Israel. Wouldn't you think that God would have went to the Israelites first? These are his chosen people, after all. But instead, this story is an example of how God, his grace is so upside down that it bypasses all the people you'd think would receive it, and it goes to not only a pagan, and, and, but, but the worst of the pagans, the one who's the head of the army who's fighting against us. Your national enemy, your worst enemy, gets the healing and you don't. And now we can begin to understand why these people wanted to kill Jesus. Because Jesus is saying here that his ministry is going to have that kind of flavor to it. This ministry is not going to go to the ones you would expect it to go to. That's why all the people he mentions in this passage are the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the nobodies. He's saying this ministry is going to go to outsiders. It will be rejected by at least most of the insiders who you think would have got it. And it's going to go to the outsiders. This is going to be a ministry. It's going to be a kingdom that Jesus is bringing. This era of jubilee. It's going to bypass on the whole the Israelites and it's going to go to these pagan widows and these captains of the national enemies of, uh, of, of uh, Israel. It's going to on the whole bypass the righteous and go to the unrighteous. It's going to bypass the religious, and it's going to go to sinners. It's going to bypass those who you think would know about it and receive it, and it's going to be brought to people who don't have a clue about it. Those who are on the inside are going to find themselves on the outside, and those who are on the outside are going to find themselves with this giant bear hug all of a sudden, all of a sudden being placed on the inside. In other words, Jesus is saying, that this kingdom that he's bringing, this era that he's inaugurating, this Ali Ali in free year of Jubilee proclamation, it's going to turn everything on its head. It's going to be the absolute reverse of what religious common sense would have expected it to be. Uh, the first shall be last, the exalted shall be humbled, the humbled shall be exalted, the last shall be first. It's all upside down. Those you thought were going to receive it don't, and they reject it. And those who you thought would be absolutely impossible, those are the ones who get it. This upside-down, topsy-turvy, radical-in-your-face flavor, this Elisha-Elijah flavor, permeates everything Jesus was about. Now, we often miss it because we're often conditioned to read the Bible through religious spectacles. And we sanitize Jesus. We tame him down. We, we, get, we, we get kind of a churchified, religious Christendom Jesus. But the Jesus of the gospel is... Everything about him screams this radical, countercultural, counterintuitive, counter-religious, anti-religious uh, theme uh, as, it, as this grace of God that breaks all the normal rules is, is, is exploded into this world. Uh, I'll give you one example from the ministry of Jesus of how this looks. This is from Luke chapter 18. And Luke, by the way, emphasizes this theme more than any of the other gospels, though they all have it. Luke 18, which is a passage we'll probably be getting to, I'm estimating around the year 2017. <laughs> but here's what it says. Now, now listen carefully. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, stop. The main foe of the kingdom, it's not those society-destroying sinners who are acting in immoral, debaucherous ways and, and ruining, ruining our culture and destroying the world. 
It's not those people that we are just waiting for God to exact vengeance on. The main opponents of the gospel, the main opponents of the kingdom, are rather those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on other people because they're confident of their own righteousness. Those who are absolutely certain that they're on the inside as opposed to those outsiders and who get life from that. They were the main opponents of the kingdom in Jesus' day and they're the main opponents of the kingdom today because the kingdom always looks like Jesus with its radical mercy and this radical servanthood mindset. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Now, Jesus loves these people, so he's, he's giving this message in the hopes that they'll wake up, trying to jar them to wake up, because he loves these people. He says this, he tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. This is the best of the best and the worst of the worst. The Pharisee stood by himself in the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like that tax collector over there. Now, see, here, here, stop for a moment. It'd be easy for me to exaggerate that so much so that it'd be easy for us to all excuse ourselves. Like, you know, oh, God, I'm so glad that I'm righteous and not like that person. But I don't think the guy was praying. There's nothing in the text that suggests that this was anything other than a sincere prayer. When I was first a Christian, this is how I prayed. I bet a lot of us have prayed that way. God, I'm just so thankful that I'm not like that. Uh, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that person. I don't have the deal breaker sin. I, I, I'm not, you know, oh, I'm just so thankful that I'm not like those evildoers, those adulterers, the ones who are going to get your vengeance and, and, and all of that. Lord, I, I, I'm thankful that I'm an insider, not an outsider. I, I think in a lot of places we're taught to pray that way. I'm so thankful, God, that I fast twice a week. Man, this guy outdoes most of us. Uh, you know, I, I, I actually fast three times a week, so I do outdo him, but I didn't want to mention that. I fast between meals. <laughs> Six times a day, actually. No. Okay. I, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. I like this guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He doesn't fast. He doesn't tithe. In fact, he rips his own people off on behalf of the, the Roman government. This guy, he, he, felt, he was so aware of his unworthiness, he stood at a distance. He couldn't go before the altar. He was unworthy. He understood that. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. So far was he from doing any works to impress God, he doesn't even lift his head to heaven. He simply beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me because I am a goner. He knows he's a goner. If it turns out God is not merciful, I'm a fried man. I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, rather than that Pharisee, went home justified. Same word that Paul uses when he says we're justified by faith. He was justified before God. Why? Because everyone who exalts themselves in their own mind, with their own righteousness, they will be humbled. But all those who humble themselves and put themselves in the position of this tax collector, they will eventually be exalted. They will turn out to be the insiders as opposed to the outsiders. To grasp this story accurately, we've got to uh, try to contextualize it. The tax collector is the scum of the earth in the Jewish mind in the first century. Scum of the earth, worse than the pagans, because they work for the pagans and they make their living by ripping off their own people. When we think of the tax collector, we've got to get in our mind the worst of the worst. I don't know what that would be for you, but for me it would be like a drug-dealing pedophile. And when you think of the Pharisee, you've got to think of the best of the best, the person that you would be most certain is going to heaven. That's how they would view the Pharisee. 
If anyone's confident, it's the Pharisee. So we should probably think of some upstanding Christian, but one who is very confident of their inside status, one who, who is very confident of their own righteousness and therefore tends to look down on those tax collectors who are, after all, the problem with society. Here's what's wrong with the world. It's not my sin, it's their sin. And, and, and so, so it's the upstanding Christian. And what Jesus is saying is that this pedophiling, drug-dealing sinner if he comes to the awareness that he's in desperate need of God's mercy, he goes home justified. Whereas this other upstanding person professing Christ but full of their own righteousness and contrasting themselves with the, the drug-dealing pedophiles, that person stands in a dangerous, precarious position in relationship with God. You talk about the tables being turned, turned that's about as turning as you can get. Jesus' ministry is full of this. At one point he says to a group of Pharisees, and this is the kind of thing that gets this guy crucified. There wasn't an ounce of popularity contest in Jesus, believe me. He says, truly I tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's not what they wanted to hear. <laughs> and these are people who simply are doing all the sacrifices, doing all the fast, paying all the tithes, always going to the synagogue, doing all the right things, but see, they're feeding off of it. And they contrast themselves with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And the reason why the kingdom of God is passing them by is because they see they're confident of their inside status based on their own righteousness. And there's not in their heart a longing to see the tax collector and prostitute and other sinners get the, the, the good news because they're the ones contrasting themselves with that. They, they like the fact that, that there's a us-them mindset, that there's a group that is, is slotted for vengeance and it's not them. And the kingdom of God passes those who are self-confident in their inside status. And Jesus is saying it's directed towards those who are just sure that they're on the outside status. Why? Because the tax collector and the prostitute, they're not looking down on anybody. They're not judging anybody. When you're on the bottom, you can only look up. And these folks are on the bottom of the social strata of, of the, the prioritized sin list. So they're not looking down on anybody. And they know that they need God. Whereas the Pharisee, then and now is sort of like a person who's had a seven-course meal and then someone comes along and offers them a di dinner. They're already full. They can't fit anything else in. They, they don't know that they need a physician because they think they're perfectly healthy. Jesus is saying to be in that position is to be in a scary position. But to be in the position where you know of your desperate need for God to have mercy on you, that is what the kingdom is all about because you are just hungry and thirsty for the declaration that the, wipe is, that the, the slate is wiped clean. And this is the era of forgiveness and mercy to all who will simply receive it. Everything in the kingdom is absolutely reversed. Those who you think will be on the inside are on the out. Those who you assumed were on the outside are on the in. And nothing illustrates this better than the passage we're reading this morning, Luke 4. And this is why this whole theme comes out. In Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown. He already has a little celebrity status because he's been doing some miracles and preaching, whatever. You would think, wouldn't you, that when he comes to his hometown... This would be the greatest celebration. Uh, this is, they would put it in their newspapers. Hometown boy makes it big. <laughs> Carpenter's son turns out to be God. <laughs> it's one of us. You know, hometown boy. You would think there'd be a major celebration. This is one of us. And wow, are, are we blessed. That's what you'd think. But though he's had success and he's been praised in other places, when he comes home, these people are so sure that they know Jesus. They're so sure. They grew up with Jesus. They're so sure they got Jesus down that they turn out to be the one group that turns against him. And they get angry and they try to throw him off of a cliff. 
And that's a theme that we'll find throughout the gospel and still going on today. The insiders turn out to be the outsiders and the outsiders turn out to be the insiders. So Jesus is rejected by his hometown and he takes his message and his kingdom on the, out in the highways and the byways. And who is it that ends up following him? Read the gospels. It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes and people like you and, and, and me. It's those who know that if, it do, if God turns out to be not a gracious God, we haven't got a chance. Let's apply it to our lives in a concrete way now. What does this mean for us? It means this, good news and warning news. Good news is this. If you feel like an outsider sometimes in religious circles, you're probably in a pretty good place. If you sometimes feel like you just don't fit in with real righteous people, you're probably in a good place. Um, if, if, if you're just aware that, that uh, if God turns out to be not to be merciful, you're a goner, you're in a very good place. If you hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not your own because you realize you don't have a righteousness of your own, you're in a very good place. If, if you find that, that you, you just don't win at the religion game, you're in a really good place. If you're amazed, as we sang earlier, as, as we sang earlier, if you're amazed that God loves you and, and you begin to see that he died for you while you were yet an enemy of if that is a reality, you're in a very good place. And having tasted a little bit of this love, if your heart is to have every person on this planet, no exceptions, receive this love, you're in a very good place. The kingdom comes to you. The kingdom is directed towards outsiders. You're in a very good place. If the world has trampled on you and you've been pushed out and, and, and you've been marginalized, that actually is, from a kingdom perspective, a fortunate thing. You're in a good place because now, now you're losing at the world's game, so you're hungry for something else. Now, the challenge for you Maybe this. Are you willing to give up your outsider sta status to let God make you an insider? Because we can get addicted to our outsider status. Isn't that true? Uh, you're so used to thinking about yourself as a victim. You're always the one that the world's never fair to you. The world always walks on you. Nothing ever goes right for you. You're always the loser. You're the person who just can't. You just can't accept that God loves you. And, and you can actually make that your shtick. That can become a, a source of life for you. This is the one thing that you got distinctive about you. And it's also kind of convenient sometimes because if you're always a victim and there's always somebody else to blame, well, then if your life is turning out pretty pathetic, you got someone to blame for it. You don't have to take responsibility for it. And it can become a source of identity for you. And it's understandable that you're that way. But it's also unfortunate that you're way. And here's the, the, the good news for you, but it's a challenge. Are you willing to let go of that victimization status? Are you willing to let go of that victimization, oh, poor me mindset in order to begin to walk like a king, in order to begin to walk as the person that God had created you to be? Are you, are you willing to accept that God loves you even if your, the neurons in your brain tend to resist that? Are you willing to let God have more credibility to you than your own brain? Are you willing to take it on faith that you, yes, you, in spite of all that you've done, all the heinous things that, that, that's gone on in your past, you, yes, you are accepted by by God. You're loved by God. Jesus died for you. Are you willing to accept that? Because to do that, you got to lose that I'm not lovable thing anymore, okay? That, that had its day. You got to lose that. And I'll tell you this. Here's the good news. If you will just lose that I'm not lovable thing and start letting God love you despite the, all, all that you've done, you let God in. And I'm telling you, it won't be long before you're not going to be walking in that poor me mindset anymore. You're not going to be walking as Mr. or Mrs. Victim and how the world's always unfair to me and, and I'm always the outsider thing. You let God's love in. You let God's power in. And you let God's truth in just a little bit. And you'll find that before long, you're, you're 
you realize that in Christ, you're no one's victim. You're not a human being's victim. You're not Satan's victim. You're a child of God. You're victorious. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You lose that I'm the loser of the world mindset, and you realize that, that you're a child of the king, and you've inherited the kingdom. But to get that, to grow in that, you've got to let go of that false, pathetic way of getting life. Just, just let it go. Quit blaming and start walking in the identity that Jesus died for you to walk in. That's your challenge. It's good news. The second thing is, it's also warning. And here's the warning. And it's to some of us here. And Holy Spirit, open up our hearts so we can see ourselves accurately. The warning is this. If you're a person who gets life from believing that you're an insider as opposed to those outsiders, that's kind of a dangerous thought. That's a dangerous spot. If you're confident that you're inside as opposed to an outsider because of your behavior and because you're not like those other sinners, that's a very dangerous spot. If you or any part of you believes that you need God's grace less than somebody else, that you needed God's mercy less than somebody else, you're in a dangerous spot. If you find yourself sort of just habitually looking down on others and contrasting yourself with others and you're very sure that their sins are tree trunks and yours is a mere dust particle, you're in a dangerous spot. You need to reverse that and make your sins the tree trunk and their sins the dust particle. If you find yourself having this, any part of you wishing, wanting God's vengeance on some, and you may call it, oh, this is just righteous indignation. Well, you check that. Because a lot of what we call righteous indignation is really this vengeance stuff I'm talking about. It's insider, outsider, outsider warfare kind of stuff. If there's a part of you that, that, that just wants them to get their due because you have just sacrificed so much to live for God and they haven't. And there's a part of you that just wants fairness and it's only fair that they get judged while you get blessed. If, that, if, that, if that's going on in any level of your being, check that because that's a dangerous sentiment. You're in a dangerous spot. If there's any part of you that feeds off of contrasting with others, and you get life from the rightness of your beliefs and the rightness of your behavior as opposed to all those who have the wrong beliefs and the wrong behavior, you're in a dangerous spot. And the challenge for you, as the Bible says over and over again, is to humble yourself. As the victimized person needs to let go of their victim mindset, you need to let go of that self-righteous uh, religious mindset. And yours is probably the harder thing to do. Because uh, the source of life is contrasting yourself with others. Humble yourself. The only safe place to be vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with God. And if you're here, it's totally safe. But here's the safe place. The safe place is to make yourself as low as you can possibly make yourself. Put yourself on the bottom so there's no one to look down on. Identify with the tax collector and the prostitute. And yes, the drug-dealing pedophile. You are in that spot. Oh, so society and, and other things may, may grade your sin a whole lot less than their sin. Got that, and society needs to do that. But you need to understand that from a kingdom mindset, looking at this from a kingdom spectacle, your sin would separate you from God as much as their sin. That's the equalizing thing I'm talking about. And you might as well come off your mighty high horse and join the rest of us sinners down here at the bottom because that's what's really going on. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. And there's one other dangerous thought, and that is this. If there's a part of you that contrasts yourself with a Pharisee, well, at least I'm not getting life from being a Pharisee. That's also a dangerous spot. Look, we're all caught one way or another, aren't we? <laughs> That's why we all need God's mercy. Because you can be an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. Those Pharisees, at least I don't have that sin. There you go. You're contrasting yourself. God's vengeance is going to come on those Pharisees. I can't wait. Nope, now you're a Pharisee. You're right in the same, same boat. Humble yourself before the Lord. 
Commit to having this mindset. Jesus, one of the last words he prayed, so incredible. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's talking about everybody, folks, because we all crucified him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. May this Ali Ali Infri, uh, year of Jubilee, be on everybody. That's, gotta be, that's the kingdom heart, even on my enemies, even the ones who right now are pounding the nails into my hands. Jesus says, as you forgive, so you're forgiven. We're to reflect to all other people what we've received. That's our kingdom mindset. And when we do that, it collapses any form of life of us versus them. It collapses the vengeance clause. God will take care of that. Don't worry. He'll take care of that. And there might be some prizes when that when it happens. Our job right now during this era is to receive this crazy, wild, outrageous, and beautiful Ali Ali and free grace, and then to extend it to all people at all times with every thought, with every word, and with every deed of our life. That, folks, is the dome in which God is king and is beautiful. Close your eyes. The question I end with is this. Holy Spirit, will you just tell us what we need to know? Are you here this morning and you are addicted to some degree to the victim mindset? The poor me mindset. I'm not lovable. How long are you going to go on with that? If you are willing to lose the victim, I'm not lovable, poor me, world's not fair mindset in order to embrace your identity in Christ and embrace the good news. And this is an act of faith, not what you're feeling because your brain may feel that you're not lovable. Okay, fine, that's how your dysfunctional brain thinks. We take God at his word. If you're willing to take God at his word that he loves you despite, now fill in the blank, before God, you want to walk in this new identity, just symbolize it by raising your hand. Every eye closed, just like, okay, I'm going to walk in that new identity. I'm going to lose that old, that old self. Anybody else? Good. That's good. Excellent. Okay, you put down your hand. Holy Spirit, tell us what we need to know. If you're here this morning, and be honest with yourself, because there's no point in lying, some part of you feeds off the contrast. Some part of you likes the vengeance clause. Some part of you looks down on others. And while you may not be perfect, at least you're not like that person or this group of person. If any part of you has a scapegoat group that you get life from, you feel righteous over and against, you need to lose that and humble yourself. And if you're willing to confess, and this is not about whether you're saved or not, this is about getting our minds to line up with, with truth. If you will lose that and, and you want to commit to making yourself as low as possible and now entering into the same level and identification with that scapegoat group or whoever it is that you think is lower than you. I want you to symbolize that before God by raising your hand. You want to humble yourself before the Lord and lose that overconfidence in your own righteousness. Amen. Beautiful. Beautiful. And now just pray with me. Holy Spirit, I first pray for the group who has inherited and is associated to a victim mindset. I'm not lovable mindset. Lord, you came to set the captives free. Set them free right here and right now. Break the chain right here and right now. Loose them from that bondage right here and right now. Cause them, Lord God, to see themselves as they truly are, Lord God. Holy Spirit, will you just fight your way into the heart of hearts and, and communicate in a way that they can understand the truth of the gospel, that they don't need to be walking in that mindset any longer. Show them how empty and futile it is to be deriving any sort of distinctiveness or worthwhileness by living in that victim mindset. 
and show them the beauty of walking as a child of God who's nobody's victim, who's nobody's doormat, who knows their worth in Jesus Christ. Reveal it to them and let them let go of the past and embrace the new. And Lord, for the second group, many of us are in this group. Tell us what we need to know. I pray, Lord God, that you just teach us how to, in our thoughts and in our words, be humble. Help us, Lord God, to see all other sin as a mere dust particle compared to our sin, which is a tree trunk. Create in us the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, who said he was the chiefest of sinners. And not that we condemn ourselves because we know we're justified in Jesus Christ, but we also don't look down on any. Lord God, free us from the bondage. For these folks who raised their hand, this also is a bondage. You came to set the captives free. Set them free from the bondage of judgment, the bondage of religion, the bondage of self-righteousness, that false source of life. Set them free from that demonic idol and liberate them to live in the freedom of the Ali Ali in free kingdom and to wish for every person on this planet, including their worst enemy, including our national enemies, to wish for them Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they have this desire to see all not receive vengeance, but receive the year of Jubilee. Let it be done. This is your kingdom. This is your kingdom, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Seal it. Seal it. Seal the truth in your mind. Amen.